0: This podcast may include adult content. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have two stories, Three Guys Over by Brian Brown and The Book of Punishments by Don Corrigan. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts. Three Guys Over. Written and read by Brian Brown. Listening time, six minutes, eight seconds.
1: Three Guys Over by Brian Brown The announcer yells, go, and Kobayashi is three guys over. It's the 4th of July, and I ate the first hot dog meat first, using the hand that isn't shoving it in my mouth to dunk the bun in a cup of water. There's a row of the cups in front of me. They're huge and have Nathans written all over them. An awkward-looking girl in an umpire jersey with drawn-on eyebrows stands on the other side of the table and watches. Kobayashi is three guys over, and before I have the soggy mess of a bun in my mouth, I know he's probably already on his third. Last year, he surprised everyone, showing up so skinny, not knowing the language, looking completely lost. But that was over in the first 30 seconds, when he started shoving them in two at a time and dancing. Fucking dancing. The referee girl has a spiral-bound stack of number sheets and flips them to two. On my third dog, I slip up and bite my finger while going for the meat. I don't feel it. My hands only feel two things. The hot and the cold. The left, the meat, the right, the water. Even those feelings are faint and far away. I know I cut myself because I can taste the blood. I'm already sick of hot dogs and it's actually a nice change. One of the guys between Kobayashi and I has this elaborate face paint with three or four colors and these white X's on his cheeks. When we took the stage, he was telling me he has the cannoli title and his eating name is Eater X. He said it like eating names are part of the sport and I should have one ready to offer him in exchange. Instead, I asked what he did. I'm a day trader, he told me. I didn't really know what that was. Trader X, I said. He gave me a dirty look and walked over to his place on the stage. I shove an entire wet bun in my mouth without chewing. It's a mistake, and for a second, it feels like it's growing in my mouth. The referee girl smiles encouragingly every part of her face except the drawn-on eyebrows moving upwards. I swallow hard, and for the first time I can hear the crowd. It's like from the word go I'd gone underwater, and now, 25 seconds and four hot dogs later, I'm resurfacing to the roar of the crowd. He's three guys over, and they're chanting his name. This year, Kobayashi's surprised us again. He's huge, a monster. It's like he used the 56 hot dogs to shape himself a comic book physique. His arms scare me. When they introduced us earlier, he had his shirt up, showing off his pecs and abs for two girls with digital cameras. He didn't pull it down when he shook my hand, and the girls wouldn't stop with the flashbulbs. I smiled big, hoping someone would notice how white my teeth are. My mother is always telling me I should show off my teeth more. They're one of your only good qualities, she tells me. The crowd is chanting Kobayashi's name, and he's just three guys over. It's hard not to get caught up in it, and for a moment, I almost cheer along. But my mouth is full of wet bun. Last night, I did the six. Six hot dogs, one minute. I boiled them, even though I hate the taste when they're cooked that way. There isn't a grill in my tiny queen's apartment. I finished in 58 seconds, it isn't my record, but it's close. I felt sick afterwards, but had to keep eating. It's important to eat a lot the day before a contest, to get your stomach stretched and ready. I called my brother, Alan, and talked to him while I ate. What are you eating now? He asked. Ice cream, I said, my mouth full. What flavor? Pistachio. Ugh. Is Hibachi going to be there? Kobayashi? Yeah. He's coming. Nathan's flew him in two weeks early to go on tour. Alan and I used to get together once a week for dinner. It started just after our father died. A reaction to the realization that we were the only adult males left in each other's lives. We'd take different subways and meet at some chain restaurant. A place loud enough that we wouldn't really have to do much. After I started competitive eating, Alan said he couldn't handle the dinners anymore. Now we talk on the phone while I train. The girl in front of me flips to the number five. She's not exactly fat, but her neck is too thick for her head and makes it look like she has four chins. I turn to the side and look at Kobayashi's referee. She's thin, with dark curly hair, and the kind of smile I've only seen on TV before now. I wonder if she's much of a distraction for him, but then she flips her numbers to eight, and I realize that it doesn't matter. Will you come? I asked my brother the night before. Can you beat him? Nope, I said. There was a moment of silence, and I shoved a stack of saltines in my mouth. I don't think I can make it. I'm going to try and get over 20, I said, crumbs flying from my mouth. I'm eating the bun of hot dog number 8 when the announcer calls the first minute. It throws me, and for a moment I set down the piece of meat in my hand. The ugly girl looks worried and holds the number up like a shield. I destroyed my record for the 6 and hadn't even realized it. Kobayashi is three guys over, and there's 11 minutes left. I grab a piece of meat and start chewing.
0: Brian Brown lives in Los Angeles and is looking for work. The Book of Punishments, written and read by Don Corrigan. Listening time, 16 minutes, 5 seconds.
2: The Book of Punishments by Don Corrigan. First Punishment. Beth and Ben rent Bull Durham one night. It's Beth's selection, her favorite movie. Usually, at the rental place, she just lets Ben choose. He's seen so many more movies than she has, and has such strong opinions about them. But this time, Beth picks. The possibility of sharing something she loves with him, rather than the other way around, feels like a rare delicacy. While they watch, Beth sneaks occasional glances at Ben. He seems to laugh at the right places, though sometimes he looks a little bored and once she catches him dozing. When the credits roll, she turns to him expectantly. So, she asks, did you like it? Sure, Ben says, but Beth recognizes his diplomatic voice. I liked it okay, some parts more than others. Oh, Beth says, she can't help feeling crestfallen. Ben laughs and takes her hand. Hey, baby, don't worry about it. It's not like you made the movie, and I liked it. I really did. I think I just came at it wrong. I would have been perfectly satisfied if I'd just expected a funny Hollywood movie. I just thought it was supposed to be something a little more. Second Punishment Ben takes Beth to the opening reception for a new exhibit of Barbara's work at the University Gallery. The show is called One. Barbara is Ben's ex. They were still living together when Beth and Ben started seeing each other. While Ben approaches Barbara for the congratulatory peck and chat, Beth reads Barbara's artist's statement, which hangs near the gallery entrance. In these photographs, I am concerned with questions of identity, both identity in relationship to the self and to various communities. Late 20th century Americans remain, like their forebears, preoccupied with notions of individuality. Yet they also increasingly identify themselves as members of public groups, African-Americans, gays and lesbians, disabled veterans, adult children of alcoholics. Self-definition, then, occurs in many layers, so that, reversing the nation's motto, e pluribus unum, we might now say that, out of one, many identities are constructed. This series examines these concerns by focusing on unsettling images of e pluribus unum and e unum pluris. Beth glances toward the spot where she last saw Ben and Barbara, They've moved over to the buffet table and are engaged in conversation with a distinguished older man, whom Beth recognizes as the chair of the art department. While Beth watches, Barbara flings back her head to guffaw at something this man says. At the same time, her hand reaches out and clutches Ben's arm. Third Punishment Beth turns away and begins perusing Barbara's photographs. The first one shows a deformed banana. Or rather, two separate bananas that have grown together within one skin. The print is large, maybe three feet by five, and divided into four equal quadrants, like a two over two sash window. In the upper left quadrant, the banana is shown intact, its skin a bright unblemished yellow. In the upper right quadrant, the banana has been peeled, revealing its twin fruits. Some brown spots have appeared on the skin. In the lower left corner, one of the fruits has been removed. And in the lower right corner, the empty, speckled, unnaturally large peel lies in a heap. After a moment, Beth moves on to the next item. This one shows a woman's foot. It's also fairly large, maybe three feet by three feet, so the foot appears larger than life-sized. The foot is daintily decorated, nails painted, draped with an anklet. The second and third digits are partially fused together, so the foot has only four nails to paint, one of them a double nail, reminiscent of the double banana. Beth recognizes the foot. It belongs to Laurel, a graduate student in Ben's department. Once, after a department barbecue, Beth mentioned that Laurel's foot, which was usually clad in a toe-bearing sandal, skeeved her out. Ben said he thought it was sexy. Beth wonders how it came about that Barbara would photograph a foot belonging to a student in Ben's department. She's still digesting this new information when a voice beside her says, practically in her ear, "'Syndactyly,' "'Huh?' says Beth, whipping her head around toward the voice. "'Fused digits,' says the man who stands beside her. "'I'm Steve,' he adds, sticking out his hand. They shake. "'Don't you work at the Florida bookstore?' "'I do,' says Beth. "'Have I sold you a book?' "'No,' says Steve. "'Actually, I work down at Chaucer's.' "'Oh, the competition,' Beth says. "'Chaucer's is the most literary of the town's bookstores.' "'Please don't hold it against me,' says Steve. "'So, what do you think?' He indicates the picture before them. "'I'm not here to think,' says Beth. "'I'm just trying to survive.' "'Steve regards her gravely. "'Are you sure this is the best choice of venue, then?' It seems like there might be other places more conducive to pure survival, more jungly or something. No doubt, says Beth, but the artist is my boyfriend's ex, so that makes this plenty treacherous. Why are you here, then? Steve asks, raising an eyebrow. Beth shrugs hopelessly. Now I'm more curious than ever to hear what you think. Beth sighs. I'm still trying to reconcile e pluribus unum with pictures of deformed fruit. Steve laughs. Better not say that too loud. They don't like that kind of plain talk in places like these. Not a fan, Beth asks, feeling a sliver of happiness move through her. He furrows his brow. Then what brings you here? I'm here to pick up girls, Steve says simply. Want to hit the buffet table? Want to run away to Mexico? Suddenly Ben is standing beside her. He has an unfailing knack for sensing when she's being flirted with. Somehow he's managed to wedge himself between Beth and Steve. Beth sees Steve's reaction, startled and bemused, out of her peripheral vision. Her forward vision is taken up by Ben, who, suddenly solicitous, has brought her a glass of wine. "'What do you think of the show?' Ben asks, handing over the wine and nuzzling Beth's hair. "'Isn't it great?' "'It's something,' Beth mutters. Instantly, she feels the reaction of both men, Ben, tense and withdrawn, "'Steve, full of lively interest. "'Ben's eyes drift over to Barbara, who stands amid a crowd of admirers. "'I'm sorry the work doesn't engage you,' Ben says, his voice filled with forced diplomacy. "'I think if you tried harder, you'd find it very rewarding.' Fourth Punishment. "'There it is, the underhanded slight, the implication that Beth isn't sophisticated enough. "'She can't believe admiring her predecessor's stupid pictures has become a requirement for her domestic happiness.' but it has. In fact, in anticipation of today, Ben tried to bring Beth up to speed last night after dinner, when he saw her frowning before one of Barbara's pictures in their living room. What? he asked, challenging. Beth flipped her hand toward the picture. I don't get it, she said. Ben smiled. I think you're looking for something that's not there. Indeed, thought Beth. What might that be? Talent? Vision? Aloud, she said, oh really, what is it I'm looking for? Beauty, he said, but contemporary art isn't about form, it's about content. Convenient, Beth thought, artists absolving themselves from aesthetic considerations. The picture she was looking at was a grainy shot of some vacant-eyed teenagers hanging out in front of the local mall. Beth was no expert, but she'd have to guess its content had something to do with the emptiness of consumerism. What, this is new? But there was no talking to Ben about it. She could tell by his tone and by the admiring look he bestowed on the picture. So she kept her mouth shut. Fifth Punishment Beth's parents are planning a vacation in Orlando. Because her father is afraid to fly, they're driving down the coast from their home in New Jersey. They'll pass within 80 miles of Alachua, and their vacation coincides with Beth's birthday. Therefore, her mom suggests they stop in for the night. It will give them the chance to finally meet Ben. Her mom will cook Beth's favorite meal. Maybe Ben could even pick up a cake and some candles for a small after-dinner celebration. Sure, Mom, that sounds great, Beth says, though she worries about how Ben will react. But when her mom makes the suggestion, It's still several months out from Beth's birthday, and Ben seems agreeable. As her birthday approaches, Beth grows excited at the prospect of her parents' visit. She begins to look around the house with a critical eye, trying to envision how it will look to them. When she does, it becomes apparent that the house is still Ben's, not theirs together. Whose fault is that, Beth wonders? Is Ben to blame? He hates change and Beth has begun to suspect that besides substituting her for Barbara, he expects everything else to stay the same. On her most paranoid days, Beth feels certain this is why he seems to be veering back toward Barbara, because she's so much better at being herself than Beth can ever hope to be at imitating her. Or is Beth herself at fault? She's spent so much time snooping around the house and then covering her tracks. It's like she's kept her presence deliberately minimal. Maybe if she makes the house more her own, she'll feel less alienated and stop picking fights with Ben. Emboldened by this thinking, Beth removes one of Barbara's works from the living room wall and replaces it with a print of Paul Clay's Cat and Bird. She replaces another of Barbara's pieces, this one in the kitchen, with an old black-and-white photo of her mother, grandmother, and aunt. Beth is in the kitchen when Ben arrives home from school. "'What's this?' he asks, stopping in front of Beth's photo. "'It's a picture of my mom,' Beth says. "'I thought I'd like to have some of my things up. "'I've realized my parents are coming soon, "'and I still act like your mistress, sneaking around the place. "'I figured I should stake some wall space of my own.' Beth laughs nervously. "'Oh, sure,' Ben murmurs. "'But at breakfast the next morning,' he says, "'I've been thinking.' Maybe it's not such a good idea to have your parents here, this time around. It's now a week before her parents' scheduled visit. Beth is stunned. Are you saying I can't have my parents as guests in my own house, she asks? Then she sees what's in Ben's face. This isn't my house, is it? It's your house, and maybe Barbara's. I'm just a guest here, living on borrowed time. Ben wipes his mustache with his napkin. I've never even met your parents, he says. Having strangers as house guests is uncomfortable for me. Ben, you can't do this, Beth cries. My parents will be here in a week. This is so unfair. You're such a control freak. Everything has to be your way, all the time. Ben folds his napkin into quarters. You call me controlling, but if I only accommodate you, then aren't you the controlling one? Beth knows this logic is seriously flawed, but before she can rebut, Ben has risen and left the table. Helplessly, she picks up the phone and dials her parents' number. Sixth Punishment Beth decides to go home for the holidays. After the fiasco on her birthday, she feels she and Ben need a break. Ben agrees so readily, however, that during the plane ride, Beth begins to suspect something is afoot. She sits in the cramped coach row, "'staring at the phone built into the seat in front of her "'until she can take it no longer. "'Her hand darts out and releases the phone. "'Jerkily, she dials the number, "'trying to think of what she'll say when Ben answers. "'But there's no reason for this concern, "'since he doesn't pick up. "'By the time the plane lands, Beth is frantic. "'She can hardly contain herself enough to greet her mother. "'What's wrong?' her mom asks sharply, "'releasing her from their hug.' nothing mom beth says everything's fine i'm just tired when they arrive at her parents house she kisses her father and brother then carries her bag to her childhood room she sits on the bed staring at the phone her hand darts out and snatches the receiver she dials no answer i made eggplant parmesan her mom says breezing through the door she stops in her tracks at the sight of beth's face Bethany, what is going on? Nothing, Mom. Is he being mean to you? It's not like that. We've just been having... issues. Issues, my ass. I can see you're unhappy. I'm fine. We just had a little fight before I left, that's all. I should probably call him and clear the air. Then I'll be able to relax. Beth forces a smile. Her mom backs out of the room, squinting suspiciously. Beth dials Ben's number again. There's still no answer. Then she dials a different number. This time, a woman picks up. May I speak to Ben, please? There's a long pause. Then, just a minute. After another long pause, Ben comes to the phone. Yes, he says. What the hell are you doing there? I'm having dinner, Ben answers. He says nothing else. For a long time, Beth listens to his silence which is punctuated only by the soft, regular sounds of his chewing. He chews and chews. Beth does not scream. Final Punishment When it's finally over, Beth retreats to her parents' house. After she's been there a week, a package from Ben arrives. It includes a short story he'd been working on before she left. Couched in Greek mythology, it tells of a man who is betrayed by everything, even his own body, which collapses underneath him when he's out in the forest on a hunt. It's also a story of failed love. Though the male protagonist is finally forced to end the unhappy relationship, it's made clear that he's the one who suffers most from this decision. The final scene occurs at a feast. Ben describes the scene in exquisite detail, paying careful attention to the outfit worn by the heroine. As she reads, Beth abruptly realizes Ben is describing the dress she wore to his department Christmas party last year. Beth is aghast. What is she supposed to do with this story, which exonerates Ben and accuses her and insults her clothing to boot? Belatedly, she turns to the letter Ben included with the story. I would appreciate any comment you might have, Ben wrote, but I fear you'll read more into this than what's there. But it is, after all, only a story.
0: Dawn Corrigan lives in Sandy, Utah with her husband and a small but growing menagerie. Her fiction has appeared online at Opium Magazine, The Big Jewel, Pindle DeBoz, and elsewhere. Her nonfiction appears regularly at The Nervous Breakdown. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off. Copyright, Bound Off, and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories.